Welcome to the Mission North Shore podcast. If you'd like to know more about our ministry here at the Mission, visit us online at www.themissionnorthshore.org. Thanks for listening. God bless. About marriage and divorce, as we continue on in our series on the life and times of Jesus. And some of you guys are cringing at this moment, and rightly so, because we are going to get into some daunting territory here. Um, We will spend at least two weeks on this text, possibly more, as you can imagine. There's a lot going on here, so if you feel that something is left incomplete today, it's because it is. We've got more weeks that we will spend on this text. In fact, we're only going to deal with about half of what Jesus talks about on this subject this morning, and then so it'll kind of be the marriage half next week. We'll pick up kind of on the divorce half. And just so you know, just a heads up, our next home groups will be on the subject of marriage. We're going to do kind of a marriage study for our next home groups. That won't be until the first of the year, but that means you can start praying about whether you want to be a host for those home groups. But here's the thing. This is also for singles, right? It's not just for married couples. We want the singles there too, because singles need to learn about marriage before they get married, right? You want to learn from the Word of God, what marriage is supposed to be like now before you do it and make all the mistakes, right? We're just saving you a whole lot of headaches by doing that. So we want to include the singles in that. It would be awesome for you to go and hear about marriage. You'll have people in those groups that have been married for some 40 years, some of them, and be a wealth of information. And here's a little teaser for it if you're single. We actually just had a wedding by two people that met in home groups. So... You might actually get married out of the whole deal. I don't know. Take it for what it's worth. As we approach this text, though, in all seriousness, we realize that we're getting into some some fairly difficult territory here. I mean, when we look at what Jesus says here on marriage, divorce, and then remarriage, it gets to be quite a, a daunting bit of territory. And one of the reasons that this is such difficult territory is because failed marriages and divorces are a painful reality in so many of our lives, aren't they? I, I mean, this is not, we're not talking about something that's rare. We're talking about something that is very commonplace in our world and in our culture right now. And if we went around the room and asked, we would notice that most of our lives have been touched by divorce at some level, haven't they? There are infinite number of scenarios even represented in this room. Maybe your parents or grandparents are divorced, so that's how it touches your life. Maybe if you have adult children, your kids have been divorced at this point. And some of those have been very hostile and very messy divorces, haven't they? Very painful divorces. Maybe you are divorced yourself. Or maybe you're considering divorce, or you're in the middle of a divorce, or maybe you're scared to get married because of the marriages and the divorces that you've seen. And so what we recognize here is that this is a reality, isn't it? That divorce touches most lives in America today in some way, and there's often great pain and confusion and then awkwardness with that, isn't there? 
for, for children afterwards. There's an awkwardness of how to deal with that and remarriage and, and uh, you know, a stepmom, stepdad. All those things bring confusion, oftentimes pain, and oftentimes a real awkwardness to the situation. So we recognize this is pretty daunting territory. The other reason that this is difficult territory is that we find that there is a stark contrast between our current culture and how it views marriage and divorce and what God says about it in His Word, right? There's a stark contrast in how the American culture views so often marriage and divorce and how God's Word speaks about it. Since around the 1960s, American culture and our current culture here has often and increasingly treated marriage as disposable. That's kind of a blanket statement. It doesn't include all, but we recognize that, don't we? That over the years, often and increasingly, marriage has become more and more viewed as disposable. The divorce rate has been for years and years at around 50% of all marriages. That's difficult meaning that about half of all marriages fail. Unfortunately, that rate is about the same in the church, which, guys, is a horrible testimony, isn't it? Now, in just recent years, we've seen that divorce rate drop quite a bit, which sounds like a good thing until you find out why. The reason that the divorce rate has dropped in America is because the marriage rate has dropped in America dramatically. People are just not getting married at the same way they once were, especially people in the average age for for getting married. Most young people are waiting far longer now to get married. They're just simply not getting married. And it's not hard to figure out why, is it? It's not. Because many are a product of a broken home and a failed marriage. And so they're looking around going, look, if half of the marriages fail, no thank you, right? I mean, look, if somebody came up to you and said, hey, you want to go skydiving? You might be, that'd be cool. That'd be exhilarating. Let's give it a shot. And then what if they told you, hey, you know what? Half the time the chute doesn't open. (laughs) What would be your, no thank you. But that's what's happening so often now as a trend in our culture. And so what we find then is the modern American culture trying new things. So people are trying to, you know, just live together for long periods of time instead of getting married. That's that's one of the experiments that the modern American culture is trying to do. But that's not really working either. Because if they ever do decide to get married, statistically, those who have lived together first are 40%, which is a a high number, 40% more likely to get a divorce if you live together before marriage. There's some lawmakers in Mexico who presented a bill, and then there's a group of lawmakers in America that are taking up this bill and trying to present it in America as as well to give two-year marriage licenses as a test drive for marriage. So you get, instead of till death do us part, you get a two-year test drive on marriage to try it out. And if it doesn't work after two years, it's just automatically dissolved. You don't renew the, the thing, you just wipe your hands of it, and you walk away. One writer in the Daily News commented this, 
this could be the best thing to happen to marriage in decades. Think about that. But this is how our culture is now responding to what's happening in marriage and what's happening with divorce. The problem with that is this view of marriage is in stark contrast to the plan and the purpose and the design of the one who created marriage. And so as we approach this, the question then becomes, is my way of thinking about marriage more in line with the culture around me? Or is my way of thinking about marriage more in line with the Word of God? And which one am I going to live out? What the culture's doing around me or what the Word of God says? And I'll warn you ahead of time, it's going to get heavy. Let's just read through it. Matthew chapter 19, verse 1. When Jesus had finished these words, He departed from Galilee And he came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him, asking him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And notice this, this is important for us today. For any reason at all. Verse 4. And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. And he said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And they said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he, speaking of Jesus, said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. We should probably pray over that. Lord, we ask that right now you would guide and lead. Lord, we declare that you are the senior pastor of this church, and we turn to you now. We know the reality of failing marriages and divorce and the struggles of marriages, even within our church. And so we turn to you right now, Lord, for godly wisdom. We turn to your word to touch our hearts. Lord, we ask you by your Holy Spirit, If there's anything within us that is looking at marriage in too low a view, that you would change that in our hearts now. Lord, we come before you now humbly, hearts submitted to you, and ask you to speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So let's begin with verse 1. It says, when Jesus had finished these words... now. As you remember, Jesus is on his way back to Jerusalem. We're only weeks away from the cross at this point. He's left Galilee. He's headed back to Jerusalem where he will be crucified. He's on the road. And it tells us that when he left Galilee, he came into the region of Judea. And this is key to the whole deal. Beyond the Jordan, 
which means he goes into the region of Perea. We have a map up here. You can see Perea is the kind of pink part down at the bottom right there. That's where Jesus is, beyond the Jordan River. He will soon turn, travel up the Judean wilderness to Jerusalem to go to the cross. But at present, he is in Perea. And where Jesus is, is significant in light of the question that he's asked about divorce. In verse 3, it says, the Pharisees came to him to test him. So there's a test going on here. And they asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reasons? Now, the Pharisees themselves were quite divided on their view of divorce. We're going to get into that in just a minute. Some of them viewed divorce very liberally and allowed it for anything. Some of them viewed it very uh, conservatively and were quite strict about how they viewed divorce. We'll get into that in just a second. So the trap being set here wasn't that they would offend them, right? That wouldn't make sense because whoever he agrees with, you know, he's going to bum one party out and be in agreement with the other party. So the trap here isn't that he would, that he would offend the Pharisees, but notice that they wait till he gets into the region of Perea to ask him this question. Now, here's that's why that's important. The region of Perea was governed by a guy named Herod Antipas, who was the son of Herod the Great. When Herod the Great died, his territories were divided up among his sons. Herod Antipas was the governor over the region of Perea. And Herod Antipas had talked his niece, it gets super creepy right here, he had talked his niece into divorcing Philip and marrying him. And so what you have in this region is a very, very high-profile divorce that had recently happened. And John the Baptist went and rebuked Herod Antipas and Herodias for having done this. We see this in Matthew 14, Mark chapter 6, and Luke chapter 3. Because of his rebuke of Herod Antipas and Herodias, he was arrested, taken to Perea, imprisoned there at a place called Macarius, and then later beheaded at Macarius. And so now Jesus is in that region and they ask him this question. And so the trap appears to be that if they can get Jesus to speak out about this high-profile divorce, as John the Baptist did, they may be rid of their little Jesus problem if Antipas decides to do away with Jesus as he did John the Baptist. Now, the way that the question is framed here highlights the division between the Pharisees on how they viewed marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Look at verse 3 again. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And notice what it says. For any reason at all. There were two different rabbinic schools at the time with two very different and prominent rabbis that had kind of launched these two rabbinic schools. You have Rabbi Hallel on one hand and Rabbi Shammai on the other hand. And the whole debate about marriage among Hallel and Shammai centered around their interpretation of the Mosaic law and specifically Deuteronomy 24.1 where it says this. 
It'll come up on the screen. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. Now, that's where the, the issue is going to come up, some indecency in her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her away from the house. Now, the whole debate between Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi Shammai is around these words, some indecency. In the Hebrew, it's evret devar. And we translate it some indecency. Some translation call it some uncleanness. Now, Rabbi Hillel took a very lax and very liberal view and interpretation of Deuteronomy 24, which is represented in verse 3, that you could pretty much divorce your wife for any reason at all. And rabbis of Hillel's school wrote later things like, you can divorce your wife if she makes your soup too salty, if she's a bad cook or something like that. If you find a more attractive woman, you can just put your wife away and then go after that one. If you just simply grew tired of her, you can get rid of her if you've grown apart. So, so Hillel took a very, very liberal, very lax view of marriage. And we'd have to admit that in our modern American culture, we see this somewhat, don't we? We see the, the school of Hillel uh, alive and well in many areas of our culture today. And the school of Hillel kind of viewed marriage and thought that marriage existed for your pleasure and your convenience, and it could be dissolved if it was no longer working for you. Rabbi Shammai, on the other hand, took the opposite approach, a very, very conservative view that Deuteronomy 24 made marriage binding, that it was a binding relationship and divorce was only permitted in the case of adultery. So ultimately, when, when these Pharisees come to Jesus, they're asking him this question, are you of the camp of Hillel or are you the camp of Shammai? Now that's the background to the questions that are being answered. Here's where we're going to go today. This is very, very important for us to see what Jesus does first. I want you to notice something. Jesus doesn't initially answer the question. Eventually, he will answer it, but initially, he does not answer the question. First, and before anything else, what does he do? He points out the original plan, the original design, and the original intention by God for marriage. You see, they come to Jesus and they want to talk technicalities. They want to talk scenarios by which we can get a divorce. Jesus starts with why they should stay married and he takes them back to original intent and to God's design. Look at verse 4. They come to him and say, can we get married for any reason? And he answers them, have you not read he, cre he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. You see, they want to know what the escape clause is and how they can get a divorce. Eventually, Jesus will answer that question. But first and above all else, he wants them to know and understand that from the beginning, God created marriage. That's what he says. He who created them from the beginning. Now, this is why this is so important. 
the fact that God created marriage makes it sacred. It makes it sacred. He created it. He designed it. Its original intent was to be permanent and holy. Holy means set apart. It is to be set apart and without divorce. And when we come to Ephesians chapter 5, Scripture tells us that marriage is so sacred that it is to be a picture of Christ's self-sacrificial love for us. That is, that people are supposed to be able to look at your marriage and see the way that Christ loves his church and gave himself up for We'll get into that at a certain point. When we look at the language in the Bible surrounding marriage, it's strong, strong language. And the reason that it's such strong language and the reason that God has chosen to use such strong language around marriage is to show his view of marriage, that it is to be held in the highest regard the sanctity with which God views marriage. He says, I created it. And then he says, he makes two people become one flesh. And then it says, what God has joined together. It's a work of him. What God has joined together, no man is to separate. And then he speaks of illegitimate remarriage in the terms of adultery. This is strong language, guys. And then we come to places like Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, where, where God himself says, For I hate divorce, says the Lord. And then Hebrews chapter 13, 4, Marriage is to be held in honor among all. Everybody is to view marriage in an honorable place. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled, for fornicators and adulterers will be judged. Very, very strong language when we come to the language of marriage to show how sacred and how serious God views marriage. And it should mean something to us that Jesus won't even open up and talk about the issue of divorce until first he has discussed, it is understood and established that God intended marriage to be sacred. You see what he did there? They want to know about divorce. He's going to oblige them at some point and, and have that discussion, but he won't do it until he shows them the sanctity with which they should hold marriage. Jesus then goes on to spell out what marriage is. Verse 4, and he answered and he says to them, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And then notice what it says, the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Guys, the marriage union is so dynamic in the eyes of God that he causes two individuals to become one flesh. This is a wild concept for us when we really understand it. And I want to say and try to in some way communicate how powerful this union is by saying this. There's only one other relationship 
in the whole world that is spoken of in Scripture with such heavy and committed terms. And do you know what that is? That's the union between Christ and us. Between Christ and us. The idea that Christ is in us and that we are in Him, God takes that same language and employs it now into marriage. Scripture now makes a parallel between that most sacred union between Christ and His church, Christ and born-again believers, and what happens when two people consummate a marriage and how united they are at that moment. In 1 Corinthians 6.16, we see one example of this where, where Paul is talking about two becoming one flesh, and then right after that he says, the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. In the the whole context of that, he's saying one who consummates a marriage becomes one with his wife, just like one who comes to the Lord becomes one with the Lord. That brings marriage into some heavy territory, doesn't it? In Ephesians chapter 5, we see it again. Beginning in verse 28, it says this, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body, but feeds and cares for it, just as Christ cares for his church. You see what he's doing? Now he's bringing the church into it. And we are members of his body. As the scripture says, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and his church are one. Guys, this should absolutely blow our minds right now. If we understand what's being said here, that the way that marriage is to be viewed, the depth of unity and commitment that we are to see in a marriage the sacredness with which it is to be held and the oneness with which it is to be regarded is to be viewed in the same esteem and honor as the oneness between Christ and His bride, the church. That means that the depth of your marriage is to be a picture of Christ and you. That takes us into a whole other realm, doesn't it? A whole other level of depth of what marriage is. Now, we have to remember here that Jesus is taking this whole thing back to its original creation design and intent. In verse 4, he says it when he says, Have you not read that he who created you from the beginning made you male and female? We see it again in verse 8. Because of the hardness of your heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. And when we go back to the beginning, we gain some great insight into the two becoming one flesh. So let's turn to Genesis chapter 2 real quick. Genesis chapter 2. And we want to gain some insight here in Genesis chapter 2 from what it means for a man and a woman to become one flesh. And what we want to see here, there's a a lot in this passage, we're not going to look at everything within it, but what I want you to notice as we go through that is that all living creatures, 
all the animals, and man himself were formed from the ground, except one woman. The creation of woman is absolutely unique in all of creation. So let's look at it. Genesis chapter 2, verse uh, 18. Then the Lord said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. What it's saying right there is that when man was created, he was incomplete in creation. And therefore, God created someone that could provide what was lacking in man. And that word helper that's used of woman there literally means completer. This is somebody that comes along and completes her husband. Verse 19. And then notice what it says. Out of the ground, the Lord formed what? Every beast of the field and every bird of the sky. God created every living creature out of the ground, including man. And we see that in Genesis 2, 7, except for one creature. Verse 19 again, out of the ground, Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to man to see what he would call them. And whatever he called the living creatures, that was its name. And man gave name to the cattle and the birds of the sky and the beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper, a completer suitable for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs, and he closed up the flesh from that place. And the Lord God fashioned, or the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to man. Guys, this makes woman absolutely unique in all of creation. No other created thing was created in the same way that a woman was created. Verse 23, and the man said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. Why? Because she was taken out of man. For this reason, have that underlined. For this reason, because she's bone of my bone, because she's flesh of my flesh, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and what's going to happen? They shall become one flesh. And so what God is saying at that moment is that in the beginning, what he did physically in the beginning between Adam and Eve, he now does spiritually in the covenant of marriage. What happened in the beginning where they were one flesh, of my flesh is now happening spiritually in your covenant of marriage. And verse six is important in Matthew 19, six. Verse six points out that this is a creative work of God. It harkens back to Genesis. Matthew uh, 19, six harkens back to Genesis and shows that it's a creative work because it says they are no longer two, but one flesh. And therefore what God has joined together. Who did the work? Who did the creative work? God did it. What God joined, it's a creative work of God. And that's why the very next thing that Jesus says is what? There in Matthew chapter 19, 6. Let no man separate. 
Let no man separate. So they are no longer two. They are one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Now I need to point out something here. That is very, in the original language, it's very violent language. It's very, very violent language. It aligns divorce with amputation or dismemberment. That's what's being talked about when it says, let no man separate. It's very, very violent language, which makes sense, doesn't it? Because of the picture of Adam and Eve, you can't separate the two. She was created from him. You can't get the rib back, can you? If you try to get it back, what do you get? You have to tear, you have to cut. You you have a painful amputation, don't you? You see, that's the picture of divorce that's being painted in the scripture here. A painful tearing of something that God created and joined together. In church, that's why we've been able to observe in the world around us that divorce is so painful and so destructive to people and to families, isn't it? Because it's a tearing of something, an amputating. Something violent has happened to a relationship that God himself joined together. Now, I want to just finish with this. The point of this morning, as I told you already, we're not done with this text. Next week and and possibly for a couple of weeks. I don't know how long we'll be here, but at least next week we'll go into the details of divorce and and what Jesus says about that there. But the point of this morning is to show how we should view marriage. The point of this morning is to correct our thinking if it's been tainted by the culture around us. It's to correct our thinking if we have too low of a view of the sanctity of marriage. The point of this morning is to answer these questions. Why should we fight for marriages? When we hear that a marriage is struggling in our church, why should we fight for that? Why should we forsake all others? Why do we need to guard ourselves against lust and flirting? Why do you need to put away the pornography? Why is the commitment in sickness and in health In richer and in poorer, why is the commitment until death do us part? And the answer is because marriage is sacred. That's the answer. And in our country and in our culture, the institution of marriage on a whole is in shambles. Guys, the marriage rate is is ridiculous outside and inside the church. Meanwhile, while that's going on, there are more books on marriage than ever before. There are more seminars and conferences and podcasts and counselors. There are more so-called experts on marriage than ever before. Yet the state of marriage is in the worst shape it's ever been in. So what does that tell us? That tells us that we are either misdiagnosing the problem and not calling sin, sin? Or we're looking for the answers in the wrong places. And the answer is in verse four. It says, he 
who created them from the beginning. He who created marriage is the answer to marriage. And if we don't have his view of marriage, we have the wrong view of marriage. And so the goal this morning, guys, is to do what Jesus did with the Pharisees right here. And that is before we talk about divorce, before we even bring up the issues of remarriage, to make sure that our view of marriage is right. To make sure that we understand in this room together that God created it, He designed it, He bound it together Himself, and therefore it is sacred. And if we don't have that view of marriage, if we have any lesser view of marriage, guys, we need to repent this morning. And we need to make sure that our view of marriage is His view of marriage. And if it's not, we need to ask Him to change our heart on that. Listen to Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I'm going to read it in the New Living Translation, and I want you to think about this verse in the context of what we've just discussed, and then we'll pray and we'll be done. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you, to give your bodies to God because of all He's done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind He will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship Him. Then look what it says in verse 2. Don't copy the behavior and the customs of this world. Don't copy the behavior and the customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Lord, we come before you now and we, um, we have to admit that we struggle through these things. We have to say that it's difficult to talk about divorce and these issues because they touch our lives, Lord. They've caused so much pain in so many lives. They're causing pain right now in people's lives. Lord, we need you to guide us through this. We don't come to this flippantly. We come to this humble. And we recognize that you are the answer. Lord, when our view of something is not in line with your view, we are wrong. So Lord, we ask that if we have too low a view of marriage right now, if we're not fighting hard enough, if we're not doing enough to prosper and grow healthy marriages. Forgive us, Lord, and guide us and lead us, Lord. We need you to move. Lord, we recognize that this is difficult and therefore we need your spirit. Lord, pour out your spirit upon us. Lord, as we worship now, we ask for you to pour out your spirit like never before. 
Convict our hearts where they need to be convicted. Cause us to celebrate where we need to celebrate. Lord, move on our heart. Lord, we put aside the craziness of our lives in this world around us. And we ask you right now to come and capture our hearts and our attention in worship. In Jesus' name.